Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tougher, even if they don't. Today is October the 14th, 2019. This is episode 2,529 of the Survival Podcast, 2529. And it's a Monday. That means it's a listener feedback show. We've got a good series of topics for you today. Here's what I've got. Um, I've got a question on a Jack Welsh concept. Firing the 10% of the bottom of your workforce once a year. Is it good? Is it bad? Is it ugly? Is it a mixture of all three? And because of that, our quote of the day today is by Jack Welsh, which is kind of sort of but not really related to the 10% fire theory. I got another call out to you guys for life hacks. I am putting together a pretty good list of those, and I think we'd have a pretty good show on just life hacks. Question on dealing with a swollen knuckle from an injury. Uh, question on pistol loading data. Is it safe for your pistol caliber carbines? And the answer is yes, but there's some things you should know anyway. Health risks, are there any with indoor growing lights and microgreens? What is the toolbox fallacy and how does it screw up your life? And I really should say the F word that I won't say because uh, it really does F up your life if you uh, subscribe to the toolbox fallacy. Concerns about a junk pile and pollution that might be left from it after it's cleaned up, moved out, and a garden is planted where the junk pile was. And uh, dealing with insect pests in your house, including the painful stinging kind, i.e. scorpions. I get to tell a story about something that happened to my grandson that I've meant to tell on the air but forgot about uh, every time I've been going to do it. Uh, this happened a couple months ago and involving a painful stinging kind of insect pest. It's really not an insect. It's an arachnid. Yep, a uh, bark scorpion. Got my grandson. We'll talk about scorpions in the house and... How we eliminate that problem, and it's probably not what you think. All right, so we'll be getting to all of this in just a moment. Before we do, let's hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day number one today is Western Botanicals. I have always gone to herbs first when it comes to improving the quality of my life for medicinal needs and for tonifying needs and just for general relaxation, removal of aches and stuff like that. I believe that we are natural beings. We are natural beings. We are not like, okay, here's humans, and then there's nature. Like, humans are nature. We are native beings to our planet. So most of what we need should be on our planet in the form that we need it. We don't shouldn't have to refine things and stuff like that. So always turn to herbs first. Now, modern medicine is a marvel and a wonder, and there's certain things that if they're wrong with me, I want to go to the doctor. You know, if I if I'm having a heart attack, I want to get a I want a cardiac surgeon to fix me before I die. But for most things in life, I think herbs are the place to go. The problem is the whole space is full of friggin' snake oil salesmen. Western botanicals are real people that really care about you, that will really help you answer the phone with your customer service decisions. They do everything above board. They've been a sponsor of this show for over eight years. Check them out at westernbotanicals.com. Next up, Free State Project. Liberty in your lifetime is possible. The Free State Project was started over 10 years ago with an idea to get 20,000 people to pledge to move to New Hampshire. They've, they've hit that pledge quite a while ago now. They've got a tremendous number of people on the ground in New Hampshire. They are turning New Hampshire into one of the freest states in the Union. You can learn more by going to freestate, I'm sorry, fsp.org forward slash join. And you can learn a lot more about the Free State Project there. This is a group that 
I've probably given more support to than any other group that you could call an activist group since I started TSP because I believe in what they're doing so much. It's not in the cards for me to move to New Hampshire. Part of me really wishes it was, but it just isn't. Uh, and it may not be right for everybody, but it might be right for you. And if you check it out, you might decide to move there. I mean, I'm going to be doing Pork Fest with them next year. Uh, we're taking our vacation up in the Northeast <clears throat> so that we can do Pork Fest next year. And I have spoken at uh, three of their Liberty Forums. I have keynoted at two of them. I have donated my personal money. Uh, while they are now a paying sponsor, I gave them two years of sponsorship in the past for free. Uh, can you think of some other organization, especially when you're talking about an activist organization, that I put any sort of real effort into really pushing? And the answer is probably no. That's because there's something special about the Free State Project. If you want to know more, again, fsp.org forward slash join and learn about this amazing group of people. Um, I love going up there and being part of what they're doing just to be surrounded by them. They're that awesome. Check them out again today, fsp.org forward slash join. All right, with that, let's get on into it. Let's start out with a quote by Jack Welsh, and this applies to so many things. He meant it. With business, Jack Welsh was a uh, uh, an entrepreneur and uh, a business executive, uh, most famous for uh, running GE for about almost ten years as their CEO. So it's a huge corporation to be running. A CEO of GE is a hell of a lot different than the CEO of the tire company down the street from you or something like that. But his quote of the day that I have for you today is: "Change before you have to." Change before you have to. Now. This has a lot to do with business. So a lot of time businesses don't really seek to improve what they're doing until the numbers go down. And then they're in a rebuilding uh, thing. And that is part of his idea of firing the bottom 10% that we'll hold on here for a second talking about. But this also has to do with, let's say, diet and nutrition. You know, I pushed myself until I realized, like, I'm going to kill myself. And I changed the way I'm eating because I had to. It would have been better all these years that I've been telling you what to do, knew what to do, had I done it then before I had to. And how many other things are there like that in your life when it comes to preparedness? You know, a lot of people decide to get prepared after something happens that they're not prepared for. Wouldn't it be better if we got prepared in advance? So from building your business to reinventing your business to taking care of yourself to being prepared in life to investing for your retirement uh, to teaching your children to learning new skills change before you have to and a lot of times I just select my quote of the day based on you know whatever I find whatever moves me but today I actually selected this quote because of our first question of the day so uh, a gentleman named Mark emailed me, and he said, I run a very small company. I have about five people that work for me, two part-time, three full-time. That's a pretty sizable small company. I recently found the work of Jack Welsh and started reading some of his books. As old as they are, they have some really great advice that applies today. I agree completely, Mark. But one of the things that really struck me was firing the 10% of your workforce rule. Jack said that he and his managers would remove the 10% of the bottom of their workforce on an annual basis to make sure they were always improving the quality of their workforce and always upgrading their workforce. While this sounds good in theory, when I look at that, I have to fire half a person. And even if I grew my workforce to 10, should I really fire one person a year? Uh, what are your thoughts on this? Or as you would say, what are the good, the bad, and the ugly, Mark? Well, I can tell somebody listens to me saying the good, bad, and ugly because I do say that a lot, right? So um, let's talk about 
scalability of this idea. So Jack Welsh, when he said this, was reflecting on his time at GE. And you're talking about tens of thousands of people working for an organization. Let's take it down to an organization with 100 people. 100 people is a lot of people. And you know I have a 10% scumbag theory. So my 10% scumbag theory is if you had 100 lawyers, 10% are vulgar scum. The, the only thing that keeps them from you know doing really horrible things to people is they're afraid that they, they will get locked up in a cage or killed or beaten or something like that. And you say, well, that's not a big stretch when you're talking about lawyers. Well, 10% of priests are scumbags. 10% of school teachers are scumbags. 10% of Boy Scouts are scumbags. 10% of you name it. You get any group and you get an, a large enough number of them, then probably about 10% are scumbags. Right? But if you get 10 people, then that would be by the law of averages. 10 of them are scum. One of the 10, it has to be a scumbag. Well, you can have 10 people and no scumbags. Right? I mean, even just 10 random people, it's too small of a sampling. I, I, equally, you could select 10 people at random and end up with five scumbags. It's too small of a sample. So when we look at the scumbag theory, we can also change it to the, like, the deadbeat theory. And probably at least 10% of people in the large numbers sampling are deadbeats. They have a job. They do just enough to keep from getting fired. They really have no driver determination to move up where they are. They would quit tomorrow if they didn't have to pay their bills. And I don't mean the way that everybody would if they won the lottery. You know, most people would if they won the lottery. I mean, like, really, like, if they could get by, if they knew they could get by for six weeks, that's long enough to find another job, they would walk away. There, there's a lot of people like that. Now, if you have a small company and you're working with your people every day, it's quite reasonable with even 20 people that you might not have anybody that's just a deadbeat drag ass. It's also possible with 20 people you have two that could go. Now, usually when you're dealing with these smaller numbers, the thing is you don't have to fire 10% of people. You struggle to keep people working for you. You end up having to replace people due to atrophy. They leave anyway. Uh, and if you are a tough but fair boss... You make the bad 10%-ish number leave. You work them hard enough. You hold them to a high enough standard. They go away on their own. And when Jack was talking about firing the bottom 10% of your workforce, i got to believe there was a certain uh, uh, allocation there for natural attrition as well. And that's not necessarily that we're going to fire 10%, but one way or another through attrition, uh, through kind of, pushing people out the door, encouraging them to go elsewhere, and actual termination of employment, we need to be getting rid of about 10% of the workforce. So I think with a very small company, if you have five people working for you and they want to be there enough that you don't have to replace them, you might avoid this altogether. But I do think that the most damaging thing that you can do once you start having employees, whether you are a manager of a significant size division of people or an owner of a company, etc., um, where you have the, the power and the decision-making capability to fire and hire people is to allow people who do not pull their weight to keep their jobs because that's how your attrition becomes your best people. You will never find people that are more miserable in an organization than the people in that organization that do the most while others get away with doing the least. Your best people will be miserable in that organization 
and only their steadfast loyalty and only their lack of ability to find a better place to be can pre prevents them from leaving. It's those two things. And so I think that instead of having a 10% fire theory for most entrepreneurs of the size that would listen to this show, a dozen, two dozen people working for you, it should be that whenever anybody is not pulling their weight, they get one chance through a review process to start pulling their weight, and then they get fired. And then you make no apologies to the rest of the workforce as to why that person went. And that one of the most important things that you can have is an ear to your workforce to where they will tell you things or you will hear things when they don't know that you're listening to them because people in an organization generally know the people that need to leave. Now, there's a big difference between everybody hates Steve and Steve is a deadbeat. Sometimes your best people are the most hated because if most of your people are drag-ass to borderline drag-ass, And Steve is busting his ass every day. Steve's a good, solid, what you would call company man, if you meant it in a derogatory way. Um, then it's likely that a lot of people won't like Steve. If Steven is, Steven is, Steve is in, I keep saying Steven, trying to say Steve is in. Steve is in a position of leadership by design. You have given him a lead responsibility. And he's actually driving work. And when people are drag asses, Steve pushes them to get what's expected out of them. They're really not going to like Steve. If we change Steve into Susan, and Susan works, well, because I, and I know I'm going to hear from women pissed about this, but this is the truth. Susan works with a bunch of other women in the same capacity. They're going to hate her even more. Women turn on each other in the workforce. It's unbelievable to me. Women could rule the world of business if they can learn to cooperate. People say women cooperate and men don't. They're wrong. I'm sorry. Women are just horrible to each other in the workplace. It's one of the reasons, I, I'll be honest, and it sounds sexist, I don't like managing women. I don't mind having a woman or two in, in, in a group of people I'm managing. I actually think I get in some ways so much more out of them than men at the same position. They work harder, they do more, they perform better. But you put six women together in a group in a work environment, and I've seen exceptions where it's not the case, but in most instances, especially when it's a middle-level thing or below, they're just awful to each other. They form little cliques. You think you're dealing with high school kids. And so you put Susan in there, and Susan is like a lead, and she's got four or five women that are working with her, and she's pushing them. They'll really hate her. So when I say to listen to who your workforce thinks needs to go, it's not about a popularity contest. It's about this person never does their job. When you hear through the grapevine, however you hear it, two or three different opinions that this one person isn't working, the time to put them on a program that demands more of them is yesterday, so you better get it done today since you didn't get it done yesterday. And they need to be looked at hard on a probationary period to be out the door. And you can take what I said about the women interacting with each other any way you want. You could be mad about it. I don't care if my workers get along. I don't care. I care about... Does the mission of the company get done? Because the whole inter-office politics and people hating on each other and click nature, and men do it too. Just I've seen it worse from women. I'm so, and I've managed hundreds of people 
in my life and in my career. I've managed literally hundreds of people in different scenarios, and I've seen it more out of women. But I don't, I, I don't understand how it's even a thing, men or women. When you're working for me, if you have time to be talking about this person in the context of why you don't like them, I need to fire you now. The first time I hear it, I will fire you now. I will not put you on probation. I will not talk to you about it. If you have time to be worried about the fact that you don't like somebody who you work with from a standpoint of a personal interactive relationship, you're not doing the business that I am paying you to be done. I am not paying you a salary or an hourly wage to bitch about the fact that you don't like her because she's not nice. Does she do her job? Yes, then I don't give a shit if you like her or not. But I do give a shit that you have time to have your little office politic bullshit. And I don't care. Again, you might take this the wrong way because I mentioned the, the women interaction. I don't care if you're male, female, third gender, whatever you are. If you have time to bitch about another employee while you're at the office... If you have time to get together in a little catty, get catty Kathy bunch and discuss another employee, then you're not doing work. Right? You're not doing work. And if you're doing it at lunch, I'm sorry, I didn't employ high school students. So my 10% theory is it might be 10%, it might be 50. It is it, whatever percentage of my people are not making the cut and not seeing to business and not conducting business like a, a professional. And do you know what that leads to? People that think, man, Jack is a hard ass. But the people that work for me in my life, the ones that didn't get fired, they would have followed me to war. They would have followed me into battle. Because they knew that they were appreciated for the work that they did and the performance they had. I had a division one time that I was running. And when I fired somebody... This is my discussion with everybody. I said, this person's been here for six months. I don't feel like they brought anything to the table. So I don't think I need to replace them because everything seems to be going well. So here's what I'm going to do. If two weeks from now, y'all pick up the little bit of piddly shit that that person did, I'm going to take their wage and divide it amongst the eight of you and give everybody a raise by that person's wage. And the next person dragging ass, we'll do that again until we have an efficient organization where no one's dragging ass. And everybody got a raise. Nobody else got fired. Funny that. That's how I approach this. That It's not about a fixed number, but I think if you are dealing with thousands of people the way Jack Welch does, it's probably a good rule of thumb. It's probably not necessarily like, you know, we're at 9.3%. Find me seven-tenths more people. You know, like, if, if you've really leaned out in your review process, you don't need to get there. And if it's like, well, you know, if we fire all these people that we all agreed need to go, we're at like 11.5%. Maybe we should keep some more of them. No. But, you know, it's it's – and I don't think it was ever meant to be a hard number. It was meant to be a rule of thumb. In other words, this should be about where you're at. And if you're not – you better be able to explain why you can't do it. So another example of this kind of philosophy, when I went to work in one of my sales jobs that I had for a company called Microtest, and that's how I ended up with Fluke Networks, uh, this is years and years ago, I went to work for Microtest and Fluke bought us. But when I went to work for Microtest, it was a much better job than the one I kept after the acquisition because I had autonomy. And my manager, Sherry, came to me when I first started. She said, look, you're, I expect that you know what you're doing or I wouldn't have hired you. Great, I love that. Okay, so here's how our cost of goods 
sold work. This is our formulas for this. And this is our general discount to our distribution distribution channel. And this is how everything works. Do you understand that? Yeah, absolutely. So these are the this is the this is the gray area where when you're trying to sell like 50 pieces of equipment and you're trying to land like a quarter million dollar deal. This is where you can just take discounts. Right? Okay, great. And you can take up to this much. Okay, fine. Okay, so here's what I'm going to tell you. All you need to be able to do is you better be able to explain to me why you did what you did. You don't need to call me and ask me. You don't need to get approval. But you better be able to explain why you went to a maximum discount in any given situation. And if you don't need to, you shouldn't be. I never had a problem working for her for a second of my life. I could have, I would, I might, if that buyout never happened and she stayed my boss, I might still be working for that company. It was so simplistic. And that's how I look at the, the, the rule of thumb in getting rid of the bottom 10%. You can get rid of as many people as you want. You can have a rule of thumb, but you better understand why you're doing what you're doing. You don't fire the bottom 10% just for the purpose of firing the bottom 10%. You fire the bottom 10% because you value the 90%. Because, there, again, there's nothing worse than busting your ass in your job and seeing somebody that's basically at your same level half-assing the whole thing, being compensated just as well as you with no consequences. That is the most demotivating thing in the world. And what it results in is I'm gonna, if, you, if you either are a loyal person and, or for some reason you have self-doubt, so you just kind of tough it out and you're miserable, or you say, I'm better than this shit. And if, if, if being a shitty employee here gets the same thing I have, that being what I am somewhere else gets more. And I'm going to go find that. Because clearly being what I am here doesn't get more. It gets the same. So I'm going elsewhere. And you just can't run a business that way if you want to be successful. So that's my take on the 10% theory when it comes to firing 10% of your workforce. Uh, next up, uh, just real quick, I have another call out for life hacks. Uh, we've had a bunch of them sent in. I want more. These are little things, little tweaks, little things you can do to make your life a little bit better. Here's, here's an example of a life hack, just something I do. Um, when I get a bunch of steak in hand, I will sometimes season it and then vacuum seal individual steaks, and I'll write on the bag you know, what kind of seasonings on there, and I throw that in the freezer. And then if I want to do a sous vide cook of that steak, I just I want two that have been done basically salt, pepper, and garlic tonight. That's what I want, just a basic steak. I just pull them out and frozen solid, throw them in the sous vide cooker, and you add about 30 minutes of cook time to them, 30 minutes for them to defrost. And then they're going to cook at the same rate. So now you can just pull steaks out of the freezer, throw them into a sous vide cooker, and have a perfectly done sous vide steak in about two hours with no real effort. That's an example. Another example of a hack would be sometimes I take that steak and I sous vide it. And then I throw it in the freezer cooked. And that way when I take that steak out, all I have to do is let it thaw out, so I take it out in the morning, and then that evening, I don't have to sous vide it at all. All I have to do is sear it. And when I sear it, it'll come up to temperature. It'll be, a good, it'll be good to eat. So those are two sous vide hacks. But they could be, this could be anything. Just I wanted to get your mind going. So I want to do a show where I have a... Because most of the life hacks are short like that, right? They don't require a lot of explanation. That's what makes them hacks. And I want to do a show that's nothing but listener hacks. And I've got maybe 10 minutes, 15 minutes of content now. 
um, on that. And I, so I want to do at least a full hour show. So send me your life hacks, whether they're cooking, tools, prepping. I don't care. Anything that makes your life just a little bit easier with a little tweak or a little hack. Send it on in. TSPC hacks in the subject line. And I'll keep putting them into a folder. When that folder gets nice and full, we'll do the life hack show. Next up, let's talk about dealing with an injury. And yeah, I'm going to invoke the comfrey gods. So this comes from Nate in Spokane. He says, do you know any methods for speeding the reduction of a swollen knuckle? My wife got her finger caught in the dog's leash over a month ago. It still hasn't been able to fit her wedding ring back over the finger because it's swollen. There's no actual damage. Her doc just says fingers take a long time to heal. I'm thinking you might have some voodoo remedies that could speed the process. Thanks, you rock. Nate and Spokane. I don't have any voodoo, but um, I, I think you'd be hard-pressed to not find uh, some benefit to comfrey here. I, I would say something like Dr. Christopher's Complete Tissue and Bone. Let's start off with um, another doctor that sometimes maybe doctors just shouldn't say stupid shit, and that is if your doctor's saying that there is no actual damage when you have swelling, then you have a doctor who is in need of maybe not losing his medical license, but maybe a good slap in the face with a frozen fish, maybe not something large like a salmon, something more like a, a nice-sized rainbow trout, something in the 16-inch range just right in the face, just just a little wake-up call because, well, um, if there's no damage, then there would be no swelling. There is swelling because there is damage. Now, no permanent damage, and maybe that's what he really means to be fair, but if I can beat up on a doctor, I like to do it. I just do. Um so maybe no permanent damage or what have you. But clearly there was damage. And if you have swelling in a knuckle, that damage is probably primarily cartilage damage. Now, here's the, the bad news. There may be swelling in her knuckle with no pain for the rest of her life. Uh, it just may never completely go away. It will probably get better. Um, I wear my ring sized, especially since I've lost weight, a little bit bigger than it really should be. Because I broke um, three fingers on my left hand when I was a kid in a, in a bike wreck, where my pinky was, and this was, basically, I didn't really break the fingers, I, I dislocated the knuckles is a better way to describe this. My pinky was at like a 30 degree angle to the outside at the uh, the the main joint. These were all the middle joints right before a ring would, you know, the, the, the knuckle the ring would have to go over last, right? The, the knuckle that would hold the ring on. So about 30 degrees to the outside of the hand. The ring finger was about 30 degrees to the inside of the hand, like overlapping the, the middle finger. And the middle finger was 30 degrees back to the outside. So the pinky and the middle finger were both pointing the wrong direction to the outside of the hand. And then the ring finger was pointing the wrong direction to the inside of the hand. Um, setting those was painful, I'll just say. And this happened when I was 16 years old. And what happened is I was in a wreck with a motorcycle, a dirt bike, that my hand kind of got caught between... Um, the, the 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 clutch and the uh, the the lever and 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 the ground and twisted when the bike went over. Um, so that's just 
something that may never completely go away. Now, I didn't really know about comfrey. Uh, the way that I do now, my, I, I knew about comfrey as something that heal wounds, but I didn't know what it would do for joints. And if I had put a comfrey compress on those for all that time, it may have helped. So I'm going to suggest at least comfrey in the form of something like Dr. Christopher's. Apply that to the joint because, um, again, it's a complete tissue and bone formula. The other thing would be to make a comfrey and plantain poulticed which can be a really simple, it sounds complicated, just, I mean, basically mash up comfrey and plantain leaf and maybe add just a little bit of oil or water to it and then form that around the whole joint and just put like a gauze pad or something like that and first aid tape around it and hold that on there and do that and change that two or three times a day, either a whole herb or something like a Dr. Christopher's and see how that works out and you'll probably have significant reduction over you know maybe a three to four week period in the swelling but just understand it may never go completely away another I, I've really damaged my hands especially my left hand but both of them and you know I broke my left thumb as well and I have this lump on the top of the knuckle that if you feel it, it's kind of freaky feeling and it doesn't really hurt and it, every once in a while you know I, I forget that it's there and I'll be you know rubbing my hands or something, I find that lump. I'm like, holy crap. And it's, it's, like, it's almost like there's a piece of bone uh, there where just there's a, you know, something was damaged to the point where it, it healed that way, and that will you know, never go away short of having it like surgically removed. And I don't think it's worth, you know, when I have full dexterity in that thumb and it doesn't hurt and it's not, get, it's not gotten any bigger in you know, 20 years that it's been there, I don't see risking even minor surgery to have it removed. It's not if you know to look for it, you can see it, but I mean nobody notices it unless they look for it. So I would say that that you just may get to a point where while the swelling will go down, it will never go fully down. But clearly there was damage or there wouldn't be any swelling. And those types of injuries can take a really long time to heal. Finger joint injuries. And so the most important thing to me is does she have full dexterity in it? So the other thing I would advise is if she can't, like when I was going in recovery with these three fingers, once I got to the point where they weren't in splints anymore and stuff like that, when I would try to bend them, I could only bend them about 50% to bending where the fingertips actually touch the pad of the hand. And so what I did every day is I would bend them as far as I could. I would hold it there for a little bit, and I would straighten them back out, and I would bend it, just like I was doing an exercise, which is what I was doing. And every day I tried to go just a little bit further, a little bit further, even to the point, and I don't know if this was a good idea or not, where I would actually kind of push on them with my other hand, just a little bit past where I could, again, I would hold them there and stretch them back out until I got to the point where now, even though they, if you, if you know what to look for, you can see those three fingers are kind of funky looking too. You know, I can, I can close my hand in like a bear palm on, on both sides. And I can touch the tips of the fingers to the pads of the hand. So once I got the dexterity back, what swelling didn't went away, I, I live with. And again, I did this at 16, and I'm 47 years old now, and there's still some swelling there. So it may never go completely away. <laughs> Next up, I've got another one here from uh, Bailey. And Bailey says, when hand-loading, is it safe to use pistol load data when loading for carbines? I have a Thompson Center Encore <clears throat> that I plan on getting a 460 Smith & Wesson barrel for, as I will have the versatility issue 460, 454, 45 Colt out of it. 
Adding to the versatility is the fact that I have a Ruger revolver in 454 and 45 Colt. I'm concerned about the horror stories of blowing open actions due to increased pressure from longer barrels, but would like to use the same ammo in the carbine and revolver without maximizing terminal performance. Uh, I have a hard time in getting information on this and would rather not throw myself to the Facebook forum of Wolves. Thank you for all you do. Bailey in Pennsylvania. Okay, so Bailey, here's the good news. You can just take everybody's opinion online that it's not safe to use uh, standard loading information for the 460 or 454 that you can fire in a handgun to use in a carbine. And you can just tell them all to blow it flat out of their asses. You're, you're, there's no horror story. Your actions are not going to blow open because it's all 100% pure bullshit. As long as you're using load data under the SAMI specifications for the loading question. It's not going to happen. If you have a TC Encore with a properly fit barrel and the action blows open when you're firing anything out of it that is the cartridge that it is labeled as and designed for, then either the cartridge itself is overloaded uh, and improperly not to spec, and it would be dangerous in a revolver as well, or there's something wrong with the gun. Because when Thompson Center makes a 460 or anything, and says this is for our Encore, which is the rifle-length, carbine-length version of uh, the Encore single shot. It's designed to meet any ammo loaded to the industry specifications for the cartridge. So everybody's opinion that's otherwise is bullshit. There's an old saying, opinions are like assholes. Everybody's got one, right? Now, I, have, I, I think I was the first person I know of to add to that, and, and they all stink. You know, your ass does not smell like roses. It smells like ass. Well, most people's opinions when it comes to things like this also stink to high heaven. This is a, this is a, this is just, it angers me a little bit if you can't tell because it's so stupid. It's so much nonsense. And I am so ever loving, as much as I love the internet, I am so sick and tired of people that they're going on about their way and I'm going to get this thing and I'm going to do this thing and then they, well, I better check. And they, they listen to two or three people's opinions who have probably never done anything anyway. And all of a sudden they have all this self doubt about something that there's no reason to even question. Now, When you're loading something like the 454 Casol or the 460 uh, that are very high pressure, very, very powerful rounds, uh, then it's always important to stay within specifications. But the idea that we need to push the absolute maximum out of these things all the time is kind of foolish. And so we should always start beginning loads for any gun, at at least 10% under maximum loads, work up from there, determine what shoots the best for our needs and accuracy of that weapon, and then be there. And, and if, if that is a grain or two less, and a few feet per second less than the maximum potential for that round, trust me, death doesn't come in degrees, and nothing shot with any of these things is not going to die because it went 10% or 10 feet per second slower than its potential. And if you can't hit it due to distance... Adding 10, 20, 100 feet per second is not going to change your range with any of these cartridges either. Now, the one thing you do need to know as far as, again, the pressures and stuff, 
it's not really a higher pressure. The ammo is, is the, again, the gun is designed for the cartridge. And if there was something like, if, if Encore made a, a, a gun and, and taking a standard loading for the 460 and putting it in there was going to create a dangerous pressure, they wouldn't make the gun. You understand that. But one of the things that does happen due to the longer burn time that the powder has while the round is moving down the barrel um, is an increased velocity. So we do need to take some consideration, not necessarily with these rounds, because these are going to be very heavy jacketed bullets anyway. But when you look at things like the 44 Magnum, etc., and you go to a carbine length, a 357 Magnum, a lot of the things like with a 357 Magnum, for instance, 158 grain jacketed hollow point, that those bullets are designed to expand at the velocities that you can expect out of the 357 Magnum revolvers for six, eight inch barrels. When you put them into something like a 16 or 18 inch barrel carbine, the gain in velocity is significant. I'm talking 350, sometimes 400 feet per second. This is a massive increase in the terminal energy. So how many foot-pounds of energy? It's, it's, it's a marked increase. And when you have that extreme increase in energy, sometimes a lighter, uh, especially a hollow-point pistol projectile, it's not a danger in shooting, but when fired at something like a large, medium-sized game animal, you can have shallow wounds because that bullet is impacting, especially, let's say, on a closer-range shot. Let's say something like a 15-yard shot. You get a close shot, you pull up your card, boom! It's probably still the case that you're going to kill that animal, but you can have shallow wounds because that bullet literally just it explodes on impact because it was never designed to hold together at that velocity. right? So especially if you hit something like a shoulder blade instead of behind the shoulder, right? that heavy bone, Boom, it can just cause a very shallow wound and maybe potentially have a crippled animal or have an animal that even though it goes down, um, you've done an excessive amount of meat damage to that animal that didn't need to happen. So my only concern that I would advise you is when you're hand-loading pistol rounds for carbines is to go with you know a heavier jacketed, heavier constructed bullet. But... If you have a manu like I'm not talking again here, like if you go out and you're making a gun, then I don't know. And I, I just can't advise you there. That's like when you start asking a medical like, should I get surgery? My doctor says so. I, 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 I'm not a doctor. I can't give you an opinion on that, right? So if you're building a gun, like I can't give you my opinion on, you know, how a different cartridge is gonna work in it, because I don't know, right? Even if I had the engineering skills, I'd have to do a lot of work to know. Right, but when you have a manufacturer building a gun and labeling it, you know, 454 Casol, anything that's two loading specifications for 454 Casol can go in there. All right. Now, I don't want to talk about this, but I kind of have to just to cover my ass. There are some guns out there for 4570 that there are some heavy commercial loads available, like from. I think like uh, double tap or things like that that really don't belong in certain guns, even some modern ones. So with 4570, think about what you're doing. Make sure that you're not, you know, and especially some of the older 4570s, like the trapdoors and stuff, originals. You don't need to be putting full bore powered stuff in there. Um, but even the like the Marlin lever guns, 
there are some hand loads that are really pushing the le- like the 4570 to almost 4458 Winchester performance levels. The- these should be limited to things like Siamese Mauser conversions and like the Ruger number one. They don't even belong in lever guns, but that's a very small niche world. All the rest of it, just tell these people to take their opinions and shove them up their ass where they'll do more good for the world. Uh, next, uh, Blake says, are there any concerns from lighting with growing microgreens indoors? I want to start growing microgreens, and the best place to do is my dining room. I'm talking two feet from my dining room chairs. We only eat there, but our homes, we not only eat there, but our homeschool kids work there. My concern likely overblown is whether the UV from grow lights will cause any harm due to a long-term exposure. Uh, is this an issue? Are the lights close enough to the trays that it really isn't a concern? Should I drape a curtain in front of them to block the light from getting out? This will be my first time growing microgreens, and I've never worked with grow lights before, so forgive my ignorance. Thanks for your help, Blake. Well, if you're going to use like T8 or T5 lights, uh, daylight spectrum lights, you're using the same lights that you might use as like... Um, Uh, a lighting in a shop. They're a shop light. It's the most inexpensive way to do this. And then the answer is, well, no, you wouldn't really worry about them much from anything. If you're going to use like full spectrum LEDs, which will work but are a bit overkill, like the Kingbow lights uh, for microgreens, those can be really dangerous to look directly at. The ambient light off the edges of them, not as much, but they can be kind of dangerous to the eye. You're looking at basically... Uh, very similar to the full spectrum of sunlight. That's kind of the point. So you either want to wear protective glasses when you're working with those or make damn sure you don't look at them because you can have some serious eye damage with those. So if you're using those, I would look at maybe at least putting a little bit of kind of a barrier up. Uh, but shop lights, they really wouldn't worry about that much at all. Uh, some people are really freaks about things like this. And I said the, the, the radiation coming off of them or whatever, we'd all be dead. We'd all be dead and have tumors the size of elephants growing out of our asses if that was the case. I'm not overly concerned about it. I would say something, though, that if you're going to grow microgreens for personal use, you probably don't need the lights on anywhere near as much as you think you do. Because you can basically grow microgreens with no light until they're almost the size that you want to harvest them, and then you only need to put lights on them for a couple days to green them up. I'm like, with sunflower seeds... You know, by the time you get them to the point where you're putting lights over them, uh, you maybe need two to three days of light. So if you're growing a full tray of sunflower and you're not doing it for a business, you're doing it for yourself, I mean, a full tray of sunflower is a couple of weeks for a family to use, in my opinion. So you might find that you don't need the lights on as much as you think you do. Um, so look a little bit more into that before you worry about it at all. Personally, I would use something like a shop light for this. I wouldn't use LED grow lights for this because you just don't need it when you're doing microgreens. So it'll be less expensive and less likely that some one of your kids will play with it and shine it in their eyes and damage their eyes. That's about the only thing I'm worried about. Uh, but some level of a curtain or something like that, it doesn't hurt anything as long as it doesn't really detract from the way your room looks. It wouldn't hurt. And it actually may make the light a little bit more intense on the plants and might actually work a little bit better for you. So there you go. So this next one comes with a uh, video you can go watch. And I have a link in the show notes for you. But it's called the Toolbox Fallacy. He said, I think you should place some of this on your show or adapt it to a whole show particularly if you're on a quarterly or year-end reminders that time is ticking and a dash gets drawn. Uh, best regards for you and yours. And this is a link to a YouTube video. And the speaker in the video talks about something he calls the toolbox fallacy. 
And boy, I've never heard it called the toolbox fallacy before, but I've sure talked about this a lot over the years in a lot of different ways and a lot of different situations. So what is the toolbox fallacy? The toolbox fallacy is I want to do this thing, whatever this thing is, but I need this other thing before I can do it. So my son got into this when he got into cleaning pools for a while. He wanted to borrow money so he could buy a pickup truck so he could go into a pool cleaning business while I had two, pool, two trucks sitting in my driveway. So I said, well, I'm not going to give you one of my trucks, but whenever you want to do your business, just come get one of my trucks and put gas in it. Now, he didn't like that because what he really was angling for is a new truck. But you know, eventually he did do that. And I said, well, if you make enough money that you think it's worth buying a truck, then you'll have enough money to buy a truck. And I'm happy to loan you my truck until, you know, you determine whether or not this business makes sense for you. But see, at least he did it. When I gave him that option, he did it. Most people don't. So most people say, well, I want to get in shape, but I need a gym membership first. Or I want to start a business, but I need these tools to be able to build this thing instead of well, I'm going to go down to a makerspace and build a few of them and see if they even sell. Uh, I want to start uh, writing, but I need a new computer. Or I need some software that's like writer's software that helps me come up with ideas. Or like It's, it's the, the concept that for whatever this thing is I say that I really want to do in my life, I need this other thing so that I can do it so that I actually can sit here and talk about doing it instead of do it. And God, that screws people up. I have people in this audience I consider personal friends. One, for instance, wants to be a musician. At least he says he does. Um, I'm like, so are you putting out a song a week on YouTube? Well, no. Then you don't want to be a musician. Well, I need more mixing gear. and I, No, you don't. No, you don't. You have a guitar, right? Yep. You got a microphone? Yep. You got a way to record? Yep. Shut up. Shut up and make music. Shut up and sing like they told the Dixie Chicks, except for you, do it for real. Put out a song a week. Come up with a new song. If it sucks, don't worry. Nobody's listening. Either you want to do this thing or you don't. Are you are you playing three or four gigs a, a, a week in bars in town around where you live? No. Then you don't want to be a musician. Well, I can't get gigs. Are you out every day hustling up a new gig? No. Then you don't want to be a musician. Maybe you're not good at it. Right, And it's not going to work. I mean, I don't know, but if you say you want to be a musician and you can actually play and sing and you can actually write songs, then if you really want to do it, you should be doing it instead of coming up with excuses as to why you're not doing it. I want to be a podcaster. Okay, podcast. But yeah, I'm going to need mixing boards and I saw this thing on the Podcast Answer Man and I need this special MP3 recorder. I started with a $30 recorder and a $20 headset and I make way more money than the Podcast Answer Man does. So... Bullshit. Either you want to be a podcaster or you don't. I want to start doing YouTube videos, but I need this HD camera and I need two angles and I learn. No, you need a freaking iPhone if you actually want to do that. I want to lose weight, but I can't afford a gym membership. So when I can get a gym, no, you need to get your ass up and take a walk. And you need to get your ass on a diet and then you'll lose weight. So whatever it is, you need to go do it instead of talking about doing it. And the way I try to explain this is more of a life philosophy is that so many people are analogous to a person that has a really shitty car. It barely runs, but it, at least it does start and it does drive. Okay, And this car has really shitty tires that threadbare, man. They're ready to blow at any minute. And they're so broke that when one of those tires do blow, the best thing they can do is get a hold of another junk tire and put it on there and hope it holds together for long enough to make enough money to get another junk tire when it happens. And they hope they have enough money every week to put enough gas in the car 
right? But the real problem, as bad as the car is, as bad as the tires are, all the problems it has, the car stinks. You can't polish it. It's a turd. It needs to be, like, when you're finally ready to get a new car, it doesn't even need to go to another person. It needs to go to the crusher. That's how bad this car is. They're carrying a whole shitload of baggage in their life. Because remember, this car is not real. It's a metaphor. They're carrying all this excess baggage. And it's weighing the car down. So the car is already ready to die, and then the motor's working so hard because it's carrying these baggage. And the car is not getting enough traction because there's so much weight that the car just, because of these shitty tires and the baggage, and like if you would just offload that baggage, then your car would start going down the road better. And then, since you were actually getting, even though the car sucks, better mileage, you can get places a little bit better, then you could actually make some more money. So then you could afford some better tires. So your car would even run a little bit better than that. And then you would actually make even more money in your life, because this is a metaphor, let's not get confused, that you would eventually be able to send that car off to the crusher or trade it in a junker's trade and get maybe not a brand new Maserati, but a little bit better of a car, which now you'd be able to run your life even better with this more reliable car with good tires on it, right? But even at the point that you got to that, if you said, now I'm going to go get all this baggage that I, that I said I threw away, I didn't really throw it away. I just pushed it off the car and left it in my backyard. I'm going to pile it on my new used car. That's a little bit better car. That car's going to start running like shit, and it's going to turn into the piece of shit car you finally got rid of, or maybe worse. Where if you leave the baggage laying on the ground, if you finally go back and go, I don't need this baggage anymore, you get yourself a five-gallon can of gasoline, and you throw it all, and... And you burn that baggage, and you leave it behind in your life. Next thing you know, you are driving a Ferrari, a Lamborghini, or a Maserati. Or a big old diesel truck, if that's what you like. Whatever it is, you're driving it. And the toolbox fallacy is the number one way you can make sure that that never happens. The toolbox fallacy is a way that you handle, hold on to all your old baggage. And you continue to load yourself down and not get shit done. You have no room and no time for that shit in your life, the end infinity. So... Whatever it is that you say that you want to do, I challenge you this week to write down five things that you claim you want to do in your life. And then I challenge you to stop making excuses about why they can't be done and pick one and demand of yourself to get started doing it. I didn't say finish it, to get started doing it in the next two weeks. And that after that thing is started, that these other things you figure out when you're going to start and you start them. You try. Now, I'm all for it's a project, like I'm going to build a chicken coop. I'm all for finishing the chicken coop before you start building the chicken tractor. I get that. But most people just say, well, I want, to, I want to eat better, and I want to get in shape. Guess what? Those two things go together. And I want to start writing. Well, if you're eating better and getting in shape, you're going to be a better writer. So you need to start writing some shit while you're – like that shit's all concurrent. Get rid of the baggage. Get rid of the toolbox fallacy. Oh, this is going to be a jackism. The toolbox fallacy. I'm going to be hitting you guys in the face with this. I'm going to get emails in. I want to do this, but I need this. You have the toolbox fallacy. I, that's the thing now. I love that this guy put a name on it. I like his video so much. It will be in the show notes. You guys need to check it out. But I challenge I challenge you. I know only 200,000 people will hear this. Only a handful will do it. I challenge some of you, though. Identify your toolbox fallacy. Identify it. Whatever it is, identify it. Have the courage. Email me and say, Jack, you were right. Thank you for punching me in the balls. I appreciate it. Okay? 
And I have identified this thing that I've always said I wanted to do. And I've identified this is my toolbox fallacy for it. And here's how I'm going to just do it anyway and start. If I get five of you that email me with TSPC toolbox fallacy in the subject line, they tell me, I was always saying I'm going to do this. I'm not waiting till next year now. I'm not waiting till next month. I'm doing this this week. And here's what was holding me back. And here's why I'm not going to let it happen. I will consider this segment of this show one of the highlights of this year if just five people will do it. Come on, don't be pussies. There's 200,000 of you. There's got to be five of you out there that can actually accept the fact that this applies to you and say, I'm not going to do this shit anymore. Jack's right. That freaking baggage is coming off the back of my piece of shit 1975 Toyota Celica. I'm going to get up the freaking hill with it for a change. I'm going to get new tires when I get down the other side of that hill, and I'm going to get my ass upgraded to at least a 1985 Monte Carlo. Right? Let's take the, let's just take the freaking analogy all the way through. Like, I'm going to do that. And I'm on my way to something like a 99 Taurus at least. Right? And sooner or later, I'm going to be driving that, that, that really nice pickup truck or whatever it is. But it's going to start here now. It's going to happen. Don't be pussies. Don't wuss out on me. Come on, guys. You, come on, gals. You too. You can do it. Two by four. To the face. Oak two by four. Heavy one. Smack! Get off your toolbox fallacy, bitches. Do something. Please. Make me happy. I ask for so little. I ask for so little, really. Right? I ask you guys to be members of Shop Through T-Spaz to financially support me. But I don't ask for a lot from the audience from a standpoint of, like, you know, making me feel good or whatever. What makes me feel good is when you guys achieve things. I'm asking you today. I want to hear from you toolbox, fallacy, clinging individuals of what you're letting go. And then I want to know what you're going to do. And then I want you to do it. And I want you to prove to me you did it. Send me a picture. Send me some form of evidence that you did this. And don't be like, well, when I get evidence, I'll No! You're doing it again. Tell me right away what you're going to do. And then no, I'm a dick. I'm going to email you like three days later. Did you start yet? No? What's wrong? What's wrong with you? Why didn't you start yet? But I'm waiting. No, you're not understanding. You stepped up. Now you got to do it. I'll hold you accountable. Come on. Let's do it. Whatever it is. Lose weight. Write a book. Make a song. Start a business. Build something. Whatever it is. Start learning about it. Whatever it is. Figure out what you've been using as your excuse that you needed to do first. Eliminate the excuse. And go. Watch the video, too. It'll help make this more clear if it's not already. Next up from Catherine. Catherine says, what contaminants do I need to be concerned about when starting a new garden uh, in an area that used to be a junk pile? There's different types of old metal, tile, building material, shingles, wood, etc., which can all be removed. Do you recommend doing any soil tests? How much of a concern is it? I want to establish my beds in the ground there. Anything specific I should look out for? Uh, it would be great to have just a, a Just Jack show about seed saving for beginners as well. Thanks for all you do. Just trying to do something with my dash. Best regards, Catherine. Okay, so seed saving. We have not talked about it in a long time. I probably should do a, an, another show on seed saving. But if you go to the uh, the website, uh, survivalpodcast.com, put in seed saving, you'll probably find an episode from like 10 years ago that's totally geared toward new people called seed saving and it'll tell the, the the stuff you're supposed to do has not changed. So uh, you can go get that, but I'll do a new one for you, Catherine, I promise. Now, let's talk about this junk pile. In most instances, I am very little in, in any way concerned about this. I'm just not. Now, this time of year, I might take a remediation approach to this with something like, let's go ahead and clear it up 
and let's plant something that'll grow in the winter, like uh, triticale or wheat or caius oat or something like that. And then at the end of the season, let's just cut this. Let's go mulch some bushes or something like that with that mulch, with that cutting uh, that um, is not a food thing, you know, like your ornamentals or whatever. Just cut it like and use it like straw and mulch with it. Right, and then turn in those roots, and then plant into that. That'd be good anyway, maybe. But I, I think that's more than you need to do. And there's a lot of remediation plants and options out there. Oyster mushrooms are a good soil remediator. Um, sunflower is an incredibly good soil remediator. But if, remember, if you're planting something for soil remediation, what it's doing is it's taking up toxins. So then we need to get rid of that organic material to some place that it's not really going to grow food again. Right, so we're moving the toxin. But biology is pretty amazing, and it breaks down a lot of toxins. And it makes a lot of toxins, they're still there, but they're inert. They're, they're, they're bound up in such ways that they can't really uh, become bioavailable to plants anymore. So biology is amazing. But the only thing that I'm even remotely concerned with, with something like this, the junk pile, that I'm really worried about, would be lead. That's about it. So if you wanted to have that soil tested to make sure there's not a high lead content in there, uh, some people would say arsenic. It's... You know, there's arsenic in natural soils. I mean, and even when you look at things like heavy metals like cadmium. So, for instance, your your plants don't want to eat cadmium, and they won't. They might have to drink it if water and soil is acidic enough, but for your plants to actually get a significant amount of cadmium in them, just as an example of one uh, contaminant that could be concerning if you were consuming it, um, you, the acidity of your soil would have to be so low that you probably wouldn't be able to grow much anyway. Do you see what I'm saying? So I'm not overly concerned about this. I think bringing in a lot of compost and organic matter and things like that from good quality sources is a good way to remediate this. I look at it this way. I people sometimes, well, uh, I don't think I should grow things because if it's out by my front yard, then there's some runoff from the street, and maybe there is. But your food being grown in your high-quality soil that you manage um, even with some street runoff or something like that, is probably 100 times better than organic fruits and vegetables from Albertsons. Just saying. It's still probably better. So I'm not going to over-worry about this. I am going to concern myself with lead. Lead is something that can be taken up by plants. So if there's any reason to believe that any of that stuff that's laying there is uh, from older construction that could have lead paint, maybe that's something to worry about. Maybe. The reality is the way most junk piles work, it's probably not worth worrying about. I probably wouldn't worry about it. Especially if you're going to do raised beds where you're bringing in material. If you're going to go straight in ground and there's some lead, maybe I'm going to be worried. But overall, no, I'm not. I'm going to rock on with life. I'm not going to get toolbox fallacy prevent me from having a garden. Uh, next up, this is from Michael. Michael says, Jack, what would you use to keep pests out of your house? Details. The other morning I woke up and went to the kitchen. I found a scorpion inside of a bowl in the kitchen counter. I have not walked around out inside the house barefoot again. The odd part is I've never seen scorpions in this part of Texas before. Would you use something like Terminex or a similar service? We have a service that we use for termites, but I'm not sure. I want poison sprayed around my walls regularly for the sake of my animals, Michael. Uh, and you are in Big Sandy. Okay, there are definitely uh, striped bark scorpions in uh, that part of Texas, including my part of Texas, right? So they're here. You just don't see them a lot. I have more of them on my property than you would imagine, and I can tell because I see their burrows. And unlike my tarantula burrows, because yes, there's lots of tarantulas around here too, believe it or not. 
you just don't see a lot. And tarantula burrows are nice and round. They look more like something like you'd see a crab dig. So they're, they're, they're not perfectly round, but they're fairly round. Scorpion burrows are always kind of egg-shaped. And the egg is always horizontal to the ground, right? They're never like vertical eggs. They don't go in like that, right? They go in because they have to fit in there with their claws the way you think of a scorpion being built. So they're around. Uh, Nick Ferguson did a project uh, for uh, someone in Central Texas, and the video he sent me with walking around with his flashlight with a set so the scorpions would glow with that blue light, um, If you had, if you got heebie-jeebies from bugs, it would have. I mean, they were everywhere. There were hundreds of them running around, so they exist. But here's the thing about scorpions, Michael, and anybody else that might have them in the house: they are carnivores. Your the scorpion wasn't in your house because he was eating eating some oatmeal you left out on the counter or something like that. They're not like roaches or crickets. Uh, I have crickets that have gotten into my house. I need to get rid of them. I've been trying to over time without using toxins because some of the um, the plant material from my fish tanks has uh, come out the back of the tanks, and they're, they're, it's duckweed and dry, and they like it, so they're eating the duckweed. So this has resulted in, uh, this year there's been an un, unusually large amount of scorpion activity in Texas from talking to people and here on my own property. Like I've seen more of them than, than we have in the past for whatever reason. They go in cycles. And this, so one night, my grandson's spending the night, this is back still when he was out of school for summer, so a few months ago, and he was sitting on the couch next to my wife, and all of a sudden he started screaming and making this horrifying noise like he was going to die. And he said, a spider bit me, a spider bit me, and he was like making this like horrifying sound of a, ah, ah, like kids do when they're really over the top, exaggerating. And I knew a spider didn't bite him and hurt because spider bites don't generally hurt. And this clearly hurt. And I'm like, no, it did. And we started looking for it. And my wife goes, no, no, it's getting me. And she got stung in the leg, which she said felt like a bee sting. And so then we get the flashlight out and we found it. It was a striped bark scorpion. And it stung him on the finger. And what happened is he had looked down and it was sitting on his hand like a pet. And when he freaked out and tried to knock it off, it, it freaked out and stung him. And my wife, when she bushed it up against it, it stung her. So I grabbed it with a pair of forceps, and we took it into the bathroom, and I let him flush the toilet, hoping he'd feel better. He was still just, I mean, inconsolable freaking out. And I know this hurts, but this kid has had, like, two teeth knocked out of his mouth with a baseball. He's not a puss when it comes to pain. And if we finally got it out of him, he thought he was going to die. Because of scorpion style. And we're like, do you think we'd be sitting here calm and relaxed and telling you to put some ice on it and not worried if you were going to die? <laughs> well, then stop it. You got, And finally I'm like, okay, look, kid, it's been long enough. It's been like 20 minutes. Do you feel like you're going to die? <laughs> I think you got to get a hold of yourself. And I kind of made him like, okay, it's time for Grandpa Tough Love. you got to get a hold of yourself. This is just, you're, get, you're being ridiculous. Your grandma got stung. Do you see that? <laughs> okay. Is, uh, he was making this sound. I can't even make it, you know, when he was sobbing. And, uh, like, does your grandmother look like she's worried about dying? <laughs> no. Okay, fine. So what I'm going to say is these scorpion stings hurt. You're not going to die. You're going to be okay. You can walk around barefoot. I walk around bare, I'm barefoot right now. And we've seen a few of them this year. And I don't want to step on what if I do? It hurts. It's okay. But that scorpion is not in your house to eat anything other than other insects. Because it can't eat anything other than insects. Scorpions do not live on oatmeal. Anybody's ever kept them? People keep them as pets. I don't get it. I like snakes, so I should get it, but I don't. Like, I don't know why somebody wants to keep a stinging animal as a pet. 
They don't ever become like you, you could think they're calm. You could hold them and all, but like if you piss it off, it's going to sting you, right? It doesn't have insects don't have and, and arachnids don't have the personality level of even a snake, which is pretty low, right? They, they their brain they don't have compassion, they don't have affection. I don't think they make good pets, but people keep them as pets, right? And they, anybody that's done that knows like you feed them crickets. And like to make sure they're since they're eating one insect, you know, to make sure they're getting enough nutrient. You do what's called gut load the trick the cricket. So you feed them fish food, and then then you feed the fish food cricket to the scorpion. You can't give a scorpion fish food; it won't eat it. So you need to deal with whatever the scorpions are eating. Now you might get a scorpion or two in your house because it's cold or it's hot or whatever. And oh, this little spot here looks interesting. I'm going to explore that where they're kind of lost, but they're not going to stay in your house long term unless they're trapped, unless there's something for them to eat, so other insects. Now, things like Terminex and all, I don't like any toxins or poisons. If you have an infestation problem, though, sometimes this is the way to go. It is not as bad as people make it out. They're not going to come in and like spray your walls and your countertops and everything. They, 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 they apply poisons that last for a specific period of time, They break down into basically nothing, and they do tend to work. And you can alleviate any concerns about dogs and cats by having a conversation with any company from a you know reputable company like a Terminex or, or what have you and handle that. I don't know that you need to do that. If you check around your home and you don't have crickets and other creepy crawlies in your house, you probably just had a scorpion that got in your home because it was exploring. Right, so you're not going to have colonies of scorpions breeding in your home unless there's a food source. Now, that doesn't mean you couldn't have a momentary upswing in the population. You could get a gravid female in your home that would have a whole bunch of baby scorpions, but if there's nothing for them to eat, they're not going to grow very well. Right, and the the the, the one offset here is I do want to be clear about something: these animals can go a long time without eating. Before they die, a long time, and so if you get some scorpions in your home, and maybe you do have a few critters for them to eat, and they eat those critters, it's when they eat all the critters, and they can't find their way out that they start showing up on countertops and on floors because now they're hungry and they're looking for something to eat. So you might go through kind of an upswing period, and all you got to do is remove them. And, and the thing about scorpions is they can't run and get you, right? They're not really fast. If you see one, uh, a pair of tweezers or something like that, just grab them by the tail. Now, you can grab them with your fingers. I've done it. Uh, you can miss. And the smaller they are, the more likely you are to miss, and the more likely you are to get stung. So I have these long forceps that I use for planting and maintaining my fish tanks. That's what I always do. I get those in the toilet and give them a ride. Um, if I thought they were endangered or whatever, I'd let them go outside. But I'm like, okay, you made a mistake, dude. You came in my house. And the one with my, my kid, my grandson, I should say, um, you know, I thought it was kind of cathartic. He got to flush it. But he was still, like I said, Duh. And so if you have kids and you have things like scorpions or tarantulas around, you know, I never realized, because we had talked about this stuff, and I thought he understood that it was like a bee sting. I never understood when he was even acting up that, he really thought this was a threat to his, his, his safety, that he was going to die or get really sick or have to go to the hospital. So if you have this going on you have kids, it'd be a good idea to tell them, like, look, you don't want to get stung by a scorpion. It does hurt. It's a lot getting by, like being stung by a bee or a wasp. And if it does happen, we just need to get rid of the scorpion, and you're going to be fine. 
put a little ice on it if it makes you feel better or whatever. But it's going to tingle, it's going to hurt, and it's, it's going to be fine. Now, I will say any venomous animal, whether it's a snake, whether it's a scorpion, a bee, a wasp, there's always a possibility of allergic reaction to varying degrees in anaphylaxis. So if somebody is stung, then you do need to observe them and make sure something else is going on and get the medical attention immediately if, if things seem to be uh, getting out of hand. The interesting thing about scorpion venom is it doesn't seem to have a correlation in any way to people that have ant or wasp or bee allergies. My wife is very sensitive to um, all stinging wasp and bee creatures, so fire ants, um, bees, wasps, hornets, etc. And she doesn't get really sick, but she swells up way more than you would expect. She, if she gets stung a couple times, she can feel nauseous. We do take her to the, the you know, we should go to care now because it's quicker and you get a steroid shot and, and you're on about your business. Um, she doesn't have an EpiPen. She's not going to have that kind of reaction, but she has some reaction. And be, because of that, if she gets stung, we're always hypervigilant because somebody that has a limited reaction can, through multiple stings, either become more resistant or more sensitive, and you never know which ones it's going to be. There's beekeepers, for instance, that have been stung so many times that like they literally don't react anymore. And then there's beekeepers who have been stung a lot of times who had to quit beekeeping. Because even though they didn't have any bad reaction in the beginning, they developed a sensitivity. So you never know what it's going to be. So be careful with that. But overall, you know, let them know it's a bee sting. And we need to treat it like a bee sting. But get rid of the critters they're eating, and they won't be there. And if you do need to rely on Terminex, don't be 100% afraid of doing it. So... Uh, with that, we have wrapped up another episode of the show. Hope you've enjoyed it. I really, 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 really want to hear from at least five people that won't be pussies this week that will tell me your toolbox fallacy, at least one, that's been holding you back and a commitment to getting started on the thing you've always said you wanted to do and just doing it. I want to hear it. Don't be pussies. Don't leave me out. And I need life hacks. Please send me your hacks, TSPC hacks in the subject line. And tell me your hacks. Let's do a hack show. And maybe I'll do a show tomorrow on saving seed. And maybe we'll like, we'll spur that. We'll, we'll, because it's really a simple topic. So maybe we'll do starting seeds and seed saving. Uh, as we get ready to head toward spring and new gardens and fall gardens and all that other stuff. So hey, anyway. With that, again, we have wrapped up the show yet again. Hope you enjoyed it. If you did, remember, you can always support this show by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. That's T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. Uh, you can go there, and no matter what you buy, you help support the show and the work that we do. And uh, you can see all the items that I've reviewed over the years. And if it's there, I own it, I use it, I bought it, I'd spend my money on it again, or I wouldn't ask you to spend your money on it. I wouldn't recommend it to you. And remember, again, the important thing is, if you go to tspaz.com and you don't buy anything that I'm recommending, but you start your shopping there, whatever you buy helps us no matter what it is, right? So just do that. Just go there when you're going to buy something online like you probably will this week. The item of the day that I have for you today is the For Life tea infuser. Now, any of you guys that have listened to the show for a long time know that I am a huge fan of French presses for making teas, uh, herbal infusions for uh, meads and other things, medicinal uses, uh, coffee. I have not made coffee in a drip coffee maker for like three years now. Uh, I drink one or two cups of coffee a day, and maybe a couple cups of tea a day, and I use most of the time my French press. But with tea, my wife doesn't drink tea anywhere near as much as I do. So, If I'm going to make coffee, odds are she's going to have a cup. So 
making two cups of coffee and a French press makes sense. If it's like late at night and I'm getting a little munchy and I want to eat something and I know I shouldn't, or I'm like, I know I'm going to have trouble sleeping and I want some chamomile tea or something, I'm going to make a cup of tea. Getting the French press dirtied up for that when I've already cleaned it so it's ready to go for coffee in the morning, don't really, I use the Four Life tea infuser because I just put it in the cup I'm going to drink the tea in, throw the tea in there, dump the hot water in it, let it infuse, take it out, dump it in the compost, rinse it out, and it's done. I was going to make the cup dirty anyway. There's nothing dirty now, right? Um, the reason I love this thing, it's big. It's huge. It takes up like half of a teacup. And that means when you put a teaspoon of dry tea in it and it swells up, there's room for the tea to actually infuse. Additionally, it has a little cover. And that little cover, when that tea's infusing and those volatile oils, those essential oils are trying to go off like a fart in the wind, they condense on that and they drip back like a distillation process back into the tea. And even when I, when I make my tea, like when, there's, when I go to take that out and there's some droplets on it, I shake them in there because I know the best stuff is in those droplets. So it's really good for that as well. This thing's awesome. It is like, depending on which color lid you get, if you give a shit, I don't. Like the black one's 16 bucks, the red one's 18 bucks. I don't know why, it just is. Uh, so it's expensive, but this is like, unless you run over this with a truck, you will never buy another one. And all those little hanging balls and those things like the, like look like spoons that have two sides to them and they clamp and they're garbage. They do not make a good cup of tea because they can't. Because if you fill them up, and then you infuse with them that he's trying to expand. And it's that expansion that lets the water exchange, that lets the infusion happen. Because all teas are infusions. That's what they are. They're herbal infusions. right? It can't happen. You can't get good surface area ratios to the liquid. So do yourself a favor. If you like drinking tea, get one of these. And uh, if you like drinking lots of tea, then get one of the French princes I recommend. But no matter what you buy, you can always support us by doing your online shopping at... T-SPAZ, T-S-P-A-Z, T-SPAZ.com. With that, we have wrapped up another episode of the show, and I want to talk to you about our song of the day. We're going into Mythology Week. All the songs this week are based on some sort of mythology, and today we are talking about, as we head toward Halloween, and we're still a few weeks away, werewolves, yes, werewolves of... London, as in Warren Zevon. Now, what's interesting, and I'm sure John Adam planted this way, is our song on Friday was All Summer Long by Kid Rock. And I heard from people that love that song and hate that song. A lot of you guys that are like late millennials that were like in your college and high school years when that song came out have some sort of like, I don't know, association with it. You don't seem to like it. Uh, and, and one of you didn't really like it because, and I didn't mention this, it's a mashup. That song that Kid Rock did is a mashup, and everybody gets that Sweet, Ho Sweet Home Alabama is one of the songs in the musical riffs in it. Because Sweet Home Alabama all summer long, right? Um, but the other place that it draws some of its musical riffs from is this song, Werewolves of London. Dun, 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 dun. That's where it they get, comes from. And uh, so... I'm sure there was a tie-in, and that's why that was the last song last week, and this is the first song this week. Um, some people really don't like when one musician takes another musician's music and uses it that way. I do as long as they don't try to deny that's what they did. You know, I I I, I think you know, like um, Vanilla Ice. Did, remember Ice Ice Baby? They took he took a Freddie Mercury Queen riff from Under Pressure to that. He never denied it, so it didn't bother me. I thought that song was stupid, by the way, but uh, so I'm okay with that. Now, this song is really associated with a movie, and maybe this is why I 
kind of like what Kid Rock did with it because it brings me back to this song and the, the association here. So when I was in high school, a movie came out called The Color of Money with Tom Cruise and Paul Newman, and Tom was a uh, really young hotshot pool hustler. In some ways, it was a terrible movie, but it was also kind of an amusing movie. And the character Tom Cruise plays is just so awful, just so over-the-top cocky. But that's who he's supposed to be in the, in, the, in the show. So he did a good job as an actor, I guess. And uh, this is pre-Crazy Tom Cruise, pre-Scientology Tom Cruise as well. Uh, but in this, the one point where he hustles a bunch of people, he goes into a pool hall and he puts this song on the jukebox. From back when there were jukeboxes. And he plays this song, while, and it's like this whole scene of him hustling. And it doesn't work out well for him, by the way. Um, but when that happened, this song ended up in every jukebox in rural Pennsylvania where there was a pool table. And every young punk kid that thought he was a pool hustler always played this song when he was shooting pool. It's like, you don't understand, kid. Like, if you're a hustler, you don't tell people you're a hustler. You're not sitting there with a $200 pool stick that you had to work for six weeks to pay for and uh, give up your cigarettes for and then, you know, playing the song and being a hustler. That's not what a hustler is. That was kind of the point of the movie. I'm sorry you didn't get it. But for some reason, like, I really loved that song, and it takes me back to being that kid, not the hustler kid. I was smart enough to know that I wasn't that good. Um, but and it also was I loved Warren Zevon. So a lot of people think that's the, this song was for that movie. It wasn't. This song was released in like 77 or 78. The movie was in like 86. It just became so tightly associated with it. And uh, I actually had like a lot of Warren's music on a lot of my, my workout tapes that I would listen to when I was lifting weights and stuff like that too. So I always loved this song, and it's kind of why I always loved the Kid Rock song that used the riffs from it. This song never really made it. Like I think Warren Zevon had one top 40 hit. And maybe it was this one. Uh, I'm pretty sure it was. I've got a link to the uh, song facts on it as well. But yeah, um, he was like the most famous unsuccessful musician. There was also a successful musician there was. Like up there with Jimmy Buffett for that, except Buffett had a few more hits, I guess. Um, but this is a great song and uh, lots of artistry with it. And if you want to know the full story behind why it was written, uh, check out the song facts on it. Anyway... Hope this is a good kickoff to your week as we move into uh, a week of mythology with our music. It's been Jack Spirico with another episode of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't.
gent who ran amok in Kent. Lately he's been overheard in Mayfair. You better stay away from him. He'll rip your lungs out, Jim. I'd like to meet his tailor. Trader Vicks. His hair was perfect. 